say, man? You got a joint? Uh, no, not on me, man. <laughs> It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> While under the influence of marijuana, his blood pressure increases. He feels unusual <laughs> hunger, and his central nervous system changes. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to learn that all four of them habitually smoke marijuana cigarettes. This is drugs. Reefers. This is your brain on drugs. I just got a shipment of Pineapple Express. The dopest dope I've ever smoked. <laughs> I mean, we need grown-ups in charge in Washington. Good people don't smoke marijuana. I experimented with marijuana in Tennessee, and I didn't like it. And didn't inhale. When I was a kid, I, I, uh, I inhaled uh, frequently. That was, that was the point. I mean, it's legal, right? The new recreational cannabis regime will officially come into force on October 17th of this year. Despite being illegal in Canada for decades, recreational cannabis use has slowly become a more widely accepted and normalized part of society. Attitudes towards cannabis have shifted dramatically, going from being an almost completely unknown drug when it was first banned in 1923 to having a surge in popularity in the 60s and 70s. This was accompanied by an increase in the number of cannabis-related arrests and panic over the perceived harmful effects it was having on society. As more research has been conducted on both the beneficial and harmful effects of cannabis, and as some of the negative societal impacts of criminalization have become more apparent, the general consensus has shifted over time, and today, on October 17th, cannabis is being legalized for recreational use across Canada. This opens up a whole host of questions and concerns to be addressed, and there will likely be some unanticipated consequences. But legalization also opens up the opportunity for more research and studies to be conducted to improve our understanding of the impacts of cannabis use. Welcome to episode 49 of Raw Talk. There are many misconceptions about cannabis out there. In this episode, we took to the streets and asked a variety of Torontonians about what they knew about cannabis, their opinions on legalization, and their personal stories. We'll also hear from several researchers studying cannabis at the University of Toronto, who will help clear up some of these myths, as well as a health policy specialist from Toronto Public Health to hear more about their priorities moving forward. Before we talk about the implications of legalization of cannabis here in Canada, we wanted to find out exactly how cannabis interacts with our brain. Why does cannabis have an effect on us and cause us to experience what we do? We talked to Lauren DeFreitas, a graduate student in the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. She's studying cannabis and its different components and shed some light on the physiological system in our body called the endocannabinoid system. We all have this inherent endocannabinoid system within us, so it's really made up of receptors, ligands, and the enzymes that degrade them. So we have two cannabinoid receptors called CB1 and CB2. CB1 is essentially associated more so with the brain and the central nervous system, whereas CB2 is more associated with the immune system. CB1 essentially is responsible for maintaining homeostasis in the body, so energy balance, our sleep-wake cycle, inflammation, memory, uh, which is essentially everything that it's responsible for controlling. Our endocannabinoids are essentially the ligands that bind to these receptors that we naturally produce within our body also. And then there's obviously enzymes that degrade them and synthesize them, which is how our endocannabinoid system helps to maintain homeostasis in the body. So 
Cannabinoids are essentially a class of chemical compounds that are found within the plant cannabis sativa. And they essentially are very similar to the endocannabinoids that we produce naturally in our body, which is how they have such a huge impact and role on our system itself and how we see acute impairments in memory and cognition, anxiety, which ties back to our natural inherent processes that they affect. So because there's so many different receptors within different parts of the brain, so uh, mainly the cerebellum, hippocampus, basal ganglia, and then the prefrontal cortex, because there's so many different areas, the endocannabinoids really just maintain homeostasis within the brain. So if one specific area is out of balance, endocannabinoids will be targeted towards that area. But for example, when you ingest cannabis, cannabis just acts on the brain overall. So it really interrupts the synchronicity of firing more so than actually targeting specific areas. We also spoke to Dr. Ruth Ross, a molecular pharmacologist in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Toronto. She's been working on the pharmacology of the endocannabinoid system for around 25 years and has done a lot of work studying the CB1 endocannabinoid receptor, which belongs to a family of receptors known as the G-protein coupled receptors or GPCRs that play an important role in how our brain functions. So the CB1 receptor is the most widespread, highly expressed G-protein couple receptor in the brain. So it's found in many, many brain regions. And endocannabinoids are released on demand, part of the neurotransmitter systems in all these different brain regions. So endocannabinoids are crucial kind of modulators and regulators of lots of physiologies like appetite, memory, mood, and the system can be working well or potentially become imbalanced in different disease states. So that's what we're working on, trying to understand what's the role of the endocannabinoid system. Is it overactive or underactive in different physiological situations or pathophysiology? And then how can we find ways of intervening to rebalance the system or activate or inactivate the system in ways that are therapeutically relevant? We also asked her about the effect of cannabis on the endocannabinoid system, and specifically, what kind of effect it has on the CB1 receptor at the molecular level. The pharmacology of cannabis is really complex. We do know that the endocannabinoid system is involved in multiple scenarios. I'm a pharmacologist, so one of the key things that people often don't realize about THC is that it's what we call a partial agonist. So people usually know about agonists, which are activators, and antagonists, which are blockers. But THC is a partial agonist. And the interesting thing about partial agonists is they can actually... um, THC can activate the CB1 receptor, but also at high doses or under certain circumstances where there's lots of endocannabinoids being released, it can actually act as an antagonist. So the pharmacology of THC is very complex and the endocannabinoid system is very complex in that we've got potentially an overproduction in some scenarios where you've got too many endocannabinoids being produced and they're actually making the disease worse. And then you've got some situations where the endocannabinoid system might be underactive and you want to potentially tune that system up so that you can bring it back into basal balanced levels. And the problem with THC is that it's a very unknown quantity because you've got something as a partial agonist. It can act as an activator. It can act as an antagonist. It depends on the dose. It depends on the individuals, whether they have a particular disease state or also potentially their genetics. 
Clearly, the effects of THC on the brain and CB1 receptors are quite complex. We wanted to know how much people knew about this, though. So we asked some students on campus and others around downtown Toronto what they know about the main active compounds in cannabis and the effects they have on the body. I think THC is the chemical that like makes you high, and I know CBD is the one that's good for you, I think. It produces different sensations, like a bodily feeling versus a uh, mental feeling. CBD? Uh, that's the one that is pain helping but doesn't get you high. And then THC is the one that gives you the buzz. THC is the psychoactive one and CBD is the healthy one. It helps uh, anti-inflammatories and stuff. I actually know this. Something, some, T something C, right? Lauren clarified this a bit more for us. THC and CBD are just two of over 100 cannabinoids found within the plant. THC we all know as uh, the typical cannabinoid that's associated with the effects of marijuana. So the high that people associate with cannabis, the paranoid effects, the anxiety, impairments in memory, concentration, that sort of thing. Whereas CBD or cannabidiol is essentially the opposite of THC where it doesn't produce any of these psychoactive effects, but it actually has promising findings in terms of being an antipsychotic, being an anti-anxiety, and having really important neurocognitive properties to it. But this is just on its own as a pure isolated compound. Lauren also told us a bit more about other components of cannabis, terpenes, which we don't hear about too often. There's some preliminary evidence that types of these can have beneficial effects, but it's clear that more research is needed before we draw any conclusions. What's really been popular, I guess, in the literature lately is this idea of terpenes and the pharmacological effects that terpenes have on cannabis and their synergistic effect with cannabinoids. So terpenes are essentially essential oil compounds found within cannabis that give it the flavor, aroma. But as I just mentioned, they also have pharmacological properties. So what we've been seeing is terpenes such as limonene, which is naturally found in lemons. If we can combine that with CBD and THC, that actually helps to reduce anxiety and depression. And for example, alpha-pinene, if you combine that with THC, that's really good for anti-inflammatory or pain populations. But because a, a lot of this work is preclinical, we we can't say definitively whether or not that is true. So going forward, um, I really do hope to see a lot of randomized controlled trials using terpenes also in their different treatment arms instead of just using differing ratios of cannabinoids. I think that is something that is really unexplored and potentially really interesting. Part of Lauren's master's project was to assess the THC and CBD levels in cannabis being sold through licensed producers and make recommendations to inform policy. She took us through her surprising findings. Really what my research is looking at is if we combine CBD with THC in the same strain, will that reduce THC-induced harms that we see with isolated THC or high THC concentrations? My colleague at CAMH, when I first started my master's in 2016, he asked me if I would like to help him out with this little side project that he was working on, which was essentially to look at all of Health Canada's licensed producers that were licensed to sell and cultivate cannabis for medical populations. So essentially what I did was I went on every licensed producer's website and took down the THC and CBD concentrations of every single strain that they had, and then analyzed all the strains overall just to kind of see what the landscape of cannabis that we were offering to Canadians. And what was interesting that we found was that 
over 76% of all strains that were being sold across Canada had THC dominant products or THC dominant concentrations. So that means everything 17% and higher. So we really weren't seeing any low THC concentrations whatsoever, which also I find interesting considering in the 60s and 70s, THC potency was 3% and now we're seeing it upwards of 25. So given that there were 76% THC dominant products, I also wanted to see, okay, even if there are THC dominant products, we know that CBD may potentially be able to mitigate some of these THC and do harms when they're combined together in the same strain. But when I looked into that, over 91% of those THC dominant strains had less than 0.01 of CBD concentration in that. So that essentially gave me a great idea of what I wanted to look into for my research was if CBD actually does have this effect on THC, then why aren't we informing policy to be able to put these regulations in place to licensed producers saying, hey, we know that these high THC dominant strains are not good for a mental health outcomes, schizophrenia and psychosis outcomes. So we really should be regulating this in Canada. That's hopefully what my research will help inform by the end. And that's definitely really interesting that there was kind of this movement towards more THC. Is there a different feel or effect of the marijuana when it's more CBD or THC? And is that perhaps why people just like the high of THC more and that's why that market has grown? Absolutely. So interestingly, the outcomes that I'm looking at in my research is psychological. So anxiety, paranoia, cognitive, such as memory, performance, concentration, attention, and then abuse, liability. So addiction related outcomes. And what studies have shown and noticed is that when you add CBD in a one-to-one ratio to THC or higher, so two to one of CBD to THC, consumers are actually able to still get the high or feel the effects that they want to feel. But what CBD is able to do, it's able to modulate the wanting and the liking when those same consumers are sober so that they're not actually craving to use cannabis again. But when they do use it, they still get the same nice euphoric effects that they want. So that I think that is a huge finding, especially going forward in forming legislation. As a pharmacologist, Dr. Ruth Ross has a great understanding of the nuanced ways in which a molecule can interact with a receptor to cause a physiological effect. In the case of THC, she makes it clear that there are actually still a lot of unknowns. We still don't fully understand the ways in which a number of different variables can influence the outcomes of cannabis use. Obviously, in pharmacology, we're always talking about doses, pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics. So there's doses, there's route of administration, how you take it, and frequency. And then there's the um, combination with CBD, which is the other principal component of cannabis. So from the perspective of THC, people... Well, potentially there are higher risks associated with high-dose THC and more frequent use. The earlier you start, the more frequently used, the higher dose you take, the more the potential negative effects could be. But on the other hand, if you have some kind of susceptibility to THC and you're particularly sensitive, then even lower doses might trigger some kind of acute psychosis or, or you're a new user, you may be susceptible And, you know, from a pharmacology perspective, any drugs that activate G-protein couple receptors, there's a certain amount of tolerance. So down regulation of the receptor or the effect. 
And so people who smoke heavy or are exposed to heavy high doses of THC will have a certain amount of tolerance, whereas people who are new users might be highly sensitive. So there's a lot of unknowns there. The other issue with doses is that um, another thing we talk about in pharmacology and in lots of fields of science is epidemiology. So we're looking at maybe we've got 30, 40, 50 years of data on people using cannabis and the implications of that. And lots of people will talk about, will say, well, we've got 40 years of data of people using cannabis and then there's been no increase in whatever, schizophrenia. So therefore, it must be safe and it's not an issue. But the reality is we've got 30 or 40 years of data of maybe 4 or 5% THC combined with an equal ratio of CBD. And from a pharmacology perspective, to then go on and say that 20, 25% is going to give you the same outcome is really not scientific at all. It's clear that more detailed research needs to be carried out to fully understand the pharmacological effects of cannabis. In the 90s, that's really when the medicinal use of marijuana was being investigated also, because we we began to see that it actually had really amazing therapeutic effects for pain populations and especially end-of-life care. So cancer chemotherapy, multiple sclerosis, so musculoskeletal pain. So because we were seeing that, different researchers kind of went a different route and went more so the therapeutic route instead of investigating the harms of cannabis. So then we started seeing things like nabilone and dronabinol being created, which are synthetic versions of THC. THC is a great anti-inflammatory. I think it, it, it's 20 times, it has 20 times the anti-inflammatory power of aspirin and two times that of hydrocortisone. So it really is a great analgesic muscle relaxant. But having said that, it also does have uh, the psychological and cognitive effects associated with it. And then more as we got into the 2000s, uh, people started investigating CBD a little bit more also. And then we realized the amazing potential that CBD has. So by using CBD, we're really hoping to harness those great therapeutic properties that THC has while reducing the cognitive and psychological harms that we're seeing with high THC also. I mean, we've really only seen this in preclinical studies so far and in a lot of uh, observational studies. So I'm really excited to see this kind of transition more to the clinical research world. There was actually a drug that was just recently approved by the FDA in 2015 called Sativex, which is a one-to-one ratio of CBD to THC that was really meant to help with muscle spasticity and multiple sclerosis as well as help with pain in certain populations. But moreover, what was recently just approved this year as another cannabinoid medication was Ipolidex, which is just a pure CBD formulation that's been able to reduce seizures in children. So really lots of exciting therapeutic potentials with cannabis. And I really do see that that's where the future with cannabis is, is that now that we're coming to an age where we're very scientifically advanced and we're able to manipulate the different chemical compounds within the plant to be able to really act on the different areas of the brain that we need it to for these uh, medicinal populations that are lacking endocannabinoids in different areas. 
One intriguing area of research into medical cannabis is the use of cannabidiol, or CBD, to treat epilepsies and seizures in children. Dr. Blanith McCoy is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Toronto and a clinician investigator in the Division of Neurology at SickKids. Her research has been investigating the use of cannabis oil to treat a form of epilepsy known as Dravet syndrome. Dravet syndrome is responsible for about 30% of all cases of epilepsy. Children with Dravet's experience lifelong seizures, sometimes upwards of 100 seizures a day. These seizures lead to developmental delays and significant learning disabilities and have profoundly detrimental effects on quality of life. Dravet syndrome is difficult to treat, it does not respond well to anticonvulsant medications, and it has no cure. In October 2015, Dr. McCoy spoke at the Marijuana and Seizure Management Conference, where she described how she planned to construct a clinical trial to investigate how CBD may be safely used to control seizures in children with Dravet's. So at SickKids, we're hoping to have a safety trial first. And basically, it's a small study um, with Health Canada approval, we're hoping, um, where we can just figure out what should we be giving, how much of it should we be giving, and what happened when we gave it to these kids in terms of their other drugs that they were on, did their levels go up or down, what happened with their seizures, and basically around safety. It'll take 20 weeks, have to give it for a reasonable amount of time, but actually we plan on following them for a year because it's just so much unknowns. We just don't have enough information. After that, all things being well, we would hope to move on to a bigger study. We need that extra step in kids, though, because we have to be extra careful around the safety parameters um, in terms of dosing. So what I'm saying is the specific component is what's important. It's not well known yet. It is certainly plausible that cannabinoids have an effect on epilepsy, but we need to know that information, that extra piece. And I will say to you, watch this space, because I know that a lot of us are working very hard in terms of trying to make this something that we know and we understand better. Since this speech, Dr. McCoy's team has been studying the use of CBD oil that contains a small amount of THC in the hopes of finding a safe pediatric dose that can enhance the anticonvulsant properties of CBD. Their recent study has found, in 20 children with Dravets, CBD oil containing a small amount of THC saw a median reduction in seizures of about 70%. While not all children responded positively, others saw dramatic reduction in seizures when compared with CBD alone. McCoy and her team are planning on conducting a follow-up study of at least 200 children with non-Dravitz epilepsy in order to further explore the therapeutic potential of combined CBD-THC oil on seizures. However, McCoy has stressed that their study only provides an idea of dosing and safety for the use of combined oil therapy in pediatric patients and that more statistical power is needed before anything concrete can be said about the effectiveness of this treatment. Another interesting way to target the endocannabinoid system for medical purposes is with other small molecule drugs that interact with the CB1 receptor in a more subtle, indirect way. In 2005, Dr. Ruth Ross made an interesting discovery about the CB1 receptor that has opened up a potential new way to target and fine-tune the CB1 receptor activity, possibly with fewer adverse effects. We've known for a long, long time that the endocannabinoid system is key in lots of different pathophysiologies. And there have been various attempts to harness this therapeutically. And we made a discovery way back in 2005, so I've been working on this for a long time, that there was what we called an allosteric binding pocket in the CB1 receptor. 
Alice Deary is very kind of interesting topic in GPCR research where allosteric pockets, so it's a way of targeting the receptor so that you can tune up or down the effects of the endocannabinoids. So rather than it being a direct effect, so THC has a direct effect, it is kind of like a volume control on a radio or something like that. So you've got these endocannabinoids being released. They're being released on demand depending on the scenario. So maybe during pain and inflammation, you've got an increased level of endocannabinoids being released. They may be causing an analgesic effect. And if you can tune that up, you basically get more of an analgesic effect or more pain relief. You're uh, harnessing this endogenous system and making it more efficient. There are other situations we think where the endocannabinoid system may be tuned up and it's actually making the condition worse. Now, psychosis might be one of those. We were still looking at that very early days, but if the endocannabinoid system is tuned up and it's making something worse, then we have another family of molecules that tune the system down, turn the volume down, as it were. So these are sets of small molecule drug-like compounds that actually can be used in a suite of different illnesses depending on whether the system needs balanced up or balanced down. With this theory, the idea is to use small molecule drugs that target and interact with the CB1 receptor in a way that modulates its activity in a more subtle way than something like THC would. Such molecules can be positive modulators or negative modulators and can be useful scientific tools to interrogate the endocannabinoid system. They may also have the potential to be useful as drugs. The cannabinoid system is one of those things that's involved in multiple kind of feedback loops. So one of the important things we need to do with these molecules, first of all, is use them to work out. If you tune the system down, what happens? Because of the situation of multiple connections and multiple pathways and feedback loop, both positive and negative feedback loops, it's very hard to predict exactly what will happen which is why it's very nice that we've got both positive modulators and negative modulators. We can look at both in, for example, in pain, in inflammation, we can look at both. We can look at these in metabolic syndrome. So the endocannabinoid system has been implicated in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We're looking at them in that. We're looking at them in, again, in brain-related scenarios. We can look at both the positives and the negatives. And one of the reasons why there's potentially such confusion and controversy over THC and psychosis maybe that the endocannabinoid system may be you know evolving and changing as a disease progresses so it may start at a certain imbalance being something that's trying to make the thing better but then it turns into a pathophysiology so then you've got layer onto that THC which can as I said at the beginning behave as both an agonist or an antagonist, it could start off as an agonist and then you've got overproduction of the endocannabinoids in an illness and it becomes a blocker. So I have no really clear answers yet, it's complicated and the bottom line is we need to do lots more research to really get a clearer picture. We're still in the early stages of understanding the medicinal uses of cannabis and particular diseases. However, there are many anecdotal examples out there of people who have successfully used cannabis to deal with some conditions, like pain. Here's a story we heard from a graduate student at the University of Toronto. 
I have a friend who actually takes the CBD oil for pain management, and he um, he's even more straight laced than me, if that's possible. And so he was like, "Don't judge me, don't judge me." But like, he replaced I think three or four narcotics um, that he was taking for this neck injury that he had. And he replaced it with the couple drops of this, I think, three times a day. And his mom, who has been an emergency room nurse, like, forever, when she looked at his prescriptions for pain, she just looked at him and said, like, you need to get off those now. Like, those are damaging to your long-term health, and you're going to be addicted and messed up. And so he looked at alternative ma- medicine, and he, he took the CBD oil, and he's like, you can't believe how amazing that it, it's, uh, it fixes the pain. And uh, his mom gave him the thumbs up and said, you know what, like a little bit of that oil versus those, go ahead, like it's cool. One of the reasons why people might be hesitant to use cannabis, either for medical or recreational purposes, is over the concern that it's possible to become dependent on it. We asked some U of T students and people around downtown Toronto if they think cannabis is addictive. You may be able to like develop a like a sort of dependency, but it, I don't know if it's necessarily addictive in the same way that like cocaine is addictive or heroin is addictive or nicotine even. So, Yeah, I think like any drug can be addictive by for certain people in certain contexts, but like Mitchell said, I don't think it's as addictive as a lot of other drugs that are in use today. Yes and no. It's like for people way. that do it in limit, no. Because I know people that have taken it before but don't feel the urge to do it all the time. Well, it depends. Anything is addictive if you just use it excessively. I stopped smoking marijuana once to, like, join the army, and it was easy, right? I stopped smoking cigarettes once, and it was was hard, you know? It was hard to smoke cigarettes, you know? Uh, Quit cigarettes, anyways. Cannabis is definitely addictive because... When you ingest it or you take it, then it sends really good messages to your brain and everything is enhanced, everything looks a lot better, your thinking is, it's, it's just everything is enhanced. So based off of experience from my friends and I, we all just have a lot of fun and the f- feeling of being happy and feeling relaxed is such a good feeling and everybody wants to feel that so if people are stressed or they're anxious or they're mad or whatever if they use that then most likely they'll become even more relaxed and everyone wants to feel that and so you just become addicted to that feeling no it's not addictive at all no no carolina is a phd student in dr tony george's lab at the center for addiction and mental health She focuses on research about cannabis use and schizophrenia and is quite familiar with addiction to cannabis or cannabis use disorder. Compared to the general population, the, I'm going to refer to cannabis use disorder. Essentially, it's cannabis addiction, but DSM defines it as cannabis use disorder. So the prevalence of that disorder in the general population is is around 3%, but certain disorders, the prevalence of cannabis use disorder is much higher. So particularly schizophrenia, which is what I study, the rates are at 25%. So that comorbidity is much higher than the general population. And so individuals that I, for example, 
assess for our study, I have to confirm their diagnosis of a cannabis use disorder. And there's different levels of it. There's mild, moderate, and severe, and that's based on the amount of symptoms they present. Um, and these range from their level of tolerance, withdrawal, you know, doing hazardous activity while high. It ranges on a spectrum in that sense. There's, there's certain areas of it. Um, but ultimately, you want to see whether or not that individual is using it often enough that it presents some kind of problem or there is a physical physical dependence of it there's also a psychological dependence of it it ranges in really that field actually a lot of the uh, participants who do our study say that oh well cannabis isn't addicting you know i don't i can stop if i want to that's a common kind of response you get but a way that at least i like to kind of have individuals realize that it is, is whether or not, you know, are you able to not use it for X amount of days? And during that time of not using it, are you experiencing any kind of withdrawal symptoms? And a lot of people don't know, but there are withdrawal symptoms from cannabis use. And those range from irritability, you know, sleeping difficulties, your appetite's affected, your mood is affected. That is withdrawal from cannabis use. So if you're not using it for some amount of time and and there's changes like that, that's what you can most likely attribute it to. And by definition, I would assume, or I would say that 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 kind of shows that it is an addictive substance. Recent data suggests that 30% of people who use cannabis may have some degree of cannabis use disorder. Additionally, people who start using cannabis during adolescence have a higher likelihood of developing a cannabis use disorder. But how exactly do people become addicted to a substance such as cannabis? Carolina explains how your brain and a neurotransmitter called dopamine respond to drugs and the changes that occur as a person becomes addicted. In terms of what's going on in the brain, it's related to the dopamine function. At least that's what I heavily kind of center my work around and the effects that it has on that neurotransmitter. Um, so the reward processing that occurs, which is a brain pathway that's associated with any kind of addictive disorder or behavior, even like gambling, um, and it's related to dopamine release. So in terms of, for example, stimulants, when you're you know using some sort of stimulant, um, you're having a upshot of dopamine being released in certain components of your brain. And what can happen is the dopamine will be released, but it won't be um, re-upped like uptaken back and so then you have this like influx of dopamine going on and that's what a lot of individuals end up feeling that pleasure feeling it becomes kind of a cue reactive response even to you know how one might see a cigarette or a lighter and they kind of get an urge to to smoke so your brain gets to a point where this response of certain cues has the same kind of effect as even using the drug We asked Dr. Ruth Ross to clear up some misconceptions surrounding cannabis and its potential as an addictive substance. There's been a lot said on the addiction and also on toxicity that's confusing or not not sufficiently expanded to communicate well. So it's important for people to know that there is a potential for dependence and that that can translate into not being able to stop cannabis when you want to, even although it's adversely adversely affecting your life. So that is very different from an opioid addiction, but it is still something that is a concern and that uh, people certainly need to be aware of that it's a real thing, a cannabis use disorder. 
In terms of toxicity, that's another really interesting one because clearly cannabis isn't like an opioid. It's not going to cause your your to stop breathing and to kill you know to have an acute toxic effect. Similarly, alcohol can have acute toxic effects on your physiology. But I think it's really important for people to know that if some there have been instances and it is the case that if people take high dose cannabis, for example, an edible or a high dose smoking cannabis in a naive user or whatever, they may develop an acute psychosis, paranoia, fear, anxiety. And in that scenario, they may be in danger. So they may be in danger because they're feeling highly fearful and anxious and a a psychosis can be very terrifying. So it would happen in a small percentage of people, high dose, potentially first time user or with an edible. But when people say cannabis is, you know, it's not at all toxic, it's entirely safe, even, you know, you could take huge amounts and you wouldn't die. Well, that statement has to be qualified in terms of it's not physiologically toxic, as in it's not going to stop your heart, but it can cause effects that could be quite dangerous. There's also a scenario called hyper cannabis induced hyperemesis, which is people can't stop vomiting. More and more emergency rooms are seeing people coming with hyperemesis and they they just constant vomiting and can't stop. So we know that there are some harmful outcomes of cannabis use related to dependence and toxicity, but we also know that people have been using it recreationally even prior to it becoming legal. What are the general perceptions of appropriate versus inappropriate cannabis use? I guess if you were got to a point where you kind of relied on cannabis or you were smoking it to the point where it was a consistent thing or you felt like you had to do it for a social aspect or to have fun or relax, I think that would definitely be a point where it's too far. When I first started out, I, I didn't have more than two days sober, like each time. So I would like, it was like almost every other day. So that was definitely an unhealthy relationship with cannabis because it was also during a time where I had a lot of things going on and it definitely it definitely did become a way for me to calm down when I was like, you know, stressed or angry, but I've learned how to not depend on it. It it depends. It depends on the setting of when people are using it. If they're using it like right now before class, that's terrible. I think some people can take anything to an extreme, right? I think anyone can get addicted to just about anything. And I've seen guys who can't even, like, have fun without smoking weed. You get sort of reliancy on it, but I think that's kind of a dime a dozen. You know what I mean? It's not very often. Inappropriate recreational activity of any kind is activity that gets in the way of you doing what you need to do. Drinking and driving's bad. Smoking, it's not cool to smoke weed and drive. It's not cool to smoke weed and we got rules. Don't smoke them in school zones. Be respectful. That's it. Although not everyone we spoke to used cannabis themselves, they all had similar ideas about when and where it was appropriate to use. The trend towards tolerance of appropriate cannabis use is something that social scientists have been tracking for decades. Amber sat down with the expert Pat Erickson, a professor of sociology and criminology at the University of Toronto and a scientist emerita at CAMH. She discussed the changing attitudes towards cannabis. So I started at the former Addiction Research Foundation in 1973, which was on the heels of the Ladain Commission. And I was hired specifically as a criminologist to assess the social impact of using criminal sanctions against uh, marijuana possession 
hold up. What was the Ladane Commission? Well, in the 1960s, cannabis use and the number of cannabis-related arrests rose rapidly. Many felt that there was a drug crisis, and it was clear that the increase in both the number and harshness of cannabis-related punishments were not serving to deter cannabis use. This prompted Pierre Trudeau's liberal government to form the Commission of Inquiry into the Non-Medical Use of Drugs, also known as the Ladane Commission. The purpose of the commission was to rigorously investigate the recreational use of drugs, including cannabis. The final findings of the Ladane Commission were published in a 1,000-plus page report in 1973. The report raised some concern about the use of cannabis by adolescents and its impact on their development, as well as the link between cannabis use and mental health disorders like schizophrenia. But the commission also identified several misconceptions. For example, that cannabis is a gateway drug, or that cannabis use incites crime. In the end, they actually concluded that the harms produced by criminalizing cannabis outweighed the harms that came from cannabis use. The final recommendation from the Ladane Commission was to decriminalize cannabis across Canada. The report was widely praised for its thoroughness, and to some, including Pat, it felt like Canada was on the verge of decriminalization. But even though cannabis was never officially decriminalized, Attitudes towards cannabis and cannabis use shifted dramatically through a process that social scientists like Pat refer to as normalization. So I did the research there and I thought, well, I suppose it will be decriminalized or even legalized in the next three or four years in the 70s and I'll move on to something else. (laughs) And uh, of course that didn't happen. And I've continued now for over 40 years to be monitoring cannabis use and cannabis policy impacts over that time. And my focus has been as a social researcher on the individual and social impacts of criminalization. All right. Would you mind speaking a little bit on the trend towards tolerance of marijuana? And I know you've done some work on what it means for marijuana to become normalized in society. Yes, these were more recent projects on normalization. And Normalization, I think it's very important to understand how we use it in the scientific field, which is that it refers to the occasional use in certain circumstances in a controlled way. So when we talk about normalizing cannabis use, we're referring to actually a lot of social norms and informal rules that govern excess. So normalization means that cannabis, which was illegal and still is for another month, has moved along a continuum from being stigmatized and a hidden kind of subcultural activity to being a fairly public one with a large number of people accessing it quite readily in society. So normalization doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen on October 17th. It, in fact, has been going on really since the 60s in a gradual way. And I think it's important to think about perhaps alcohol as well and realize that when we say alcohol is normalized in society, we don't mean that any use, anytime, anywhere is acceptable. We mean that there are certain boundaries around what is acceptable use, who uses it, when, where. And this is the same process that's been underway for marijuana use. So that when we did our studies of fairly long-term adult users, ages 20 to 50, we found that They were very aware of appropriate situations to use. They weren't approving of excessive use. 
and they were cautious perhaps in public use in certain areas. But the idea that normalization means it's kind of opening the floodgates to anybody using it uh, all over any time, being promoted, etc., that isn't what normalization about. In fact, normalization is an important mechanism of social control because the users themselves will sense monitor friends and associates about what, where it's important to use or not use. So when we asked people, where do you think it's appropriate to use? And uh, said, well, with people who are okay with you using and they don't mind, or that you go outside or you go somewhere, you don't offend them, where shouldn't you use? You know, baby showers, church, funerals, around anyone who isn't comfortable with it. So it <clears throat> what we concluded, because we were also studying in this project people who use tobacco and people who use both tobacco and marijuana, three groups and marijuana only. And there was really a convergent in norms around tobacco and marijuana in, in the sense that even though they're, they have operated different poles of legality, the uh, tobacco users or the considerate cigarette smoker, as, as you will, is also quite aware of where it's appropriate or inappropriate to use. And I think one of the important implications of that study is that most of the uh, marijuana users, along with tobacco users, accepted that there should be certain restrictions on who it's sold to and where it's used and with whom. And I think that means that in the future of legal regulation of marijuana, I think people will continue to be sensitive to appropriate norms of use and are not going to, for the most part, want to offend non-users or use in front of children and so on. They're, they will accept that there are going to be public health restrictions on marijuana, that it isn't going to be simply, you know, every place is like one of the marijuana fairs that are happening in the states. The society will restrict use in certain ways, and I think that's a very important part of our Canadian approach. Yeah, definitely, I would agree. What would you say is acceptable versus non-acceptable use of marijuana? You can compare that to tobacco use, or maybe alcohol would be a better comparison for that. Yeah, well, again, it's going to vary by your age group, maybe by male-female, by, for instance, campus. We found high tolerance of marijuana use, even among non-users. You go to a uh, equivalent of an abstaining community for alcohol, you'll have perhaps religious groups, uh, particular groups from different backgrounds, different countries that will be not happy about marijuana use and will not want to see people using. On the other hand, I had interview subjects who said, yeah, we go out and use with my parents or, you know, so on. So it's variable. And I think the, the important thing is to realize that these norms are already being established given the widespread use, given that, a, you know, almost half of university students have used it, at least we're getting to higher levels in the population overall have tried it. We have to realize that that doesn't mean that everybody has to use it just because it's legal or that everybody is going to use it in an uncontrolled or irresponsible way. I think the norms are already there and it's important that that education, public policy, municipal guidelines and so on all reinforce 
a responsible and more cautious use of, of marijuana than perhaps people sometimes imagine will happen. Legalize, the legal barrier, I think, as a criminologist, I have to say people inflate that far too much as both a deterrent and something that once it's removed, people will, will somehow go wild. And that just isn't the case with other types of less acceptable behaviors and for marijuana as well. So what do people think? Overall, is legalization a good step for Canada? I think that the legalization is definitely not the best route because with it being illegal, a lot of people were still doing it. And so now that it's going to become illegal, it's going to become even easier to access. And those types of things, it's just adding onto the list of things that you can use to not be sober. And it's like, giving more access to things to become addicted to and to just a lot of problems can arise. Um, I guess with the legalization, I can see why it's a negative, like some people view it negatively, but I guess you also have to think about how like now people won't be getting it from dangerous sources. I guess maybe now it'll be a little bit safer to do it. I would say yes, because especially um, like for white people, it's pretty, it's like largely been decriminalized for a long time it's like you're very unlikely to be charged for like possessing or like even selling cannabis but um drug laws have primarily targeted like marginalized communities for a long time and it seems like radically unfair to me that um like they would be punished whereas like the majority white people would not Yeah, I think it's like a huge waste of um, government resources to prosecute people for using cannabis. Uh, I think there's like more important things they could be doing. Yeah, no issues against it becoming legal. Might as well, it's going to probably give more clarity to like the older people using it too, because I think right now it's kind of got a stigma for a lot of younger use. So it'll definitely kind of promote that and hopefully like help erase the stigma and kind of erase the use of other narcotics. If anything, a lot of people see legalization as more access, but I see it's kind of an obstructionist to most people who don't have the money for paying extra taxes and all that stuff, right? So, because we even be able to get it off any corner you want forever, you know what I mean? Like, it actually really hasn't opened access at all. It made it just more legitimate and more highly priced, you know? Legalization, I thought it was a great idea. Uh, recently, though, I started uh, smelling the marijuana smoke in all the parks and things like this, and I have a kid as well. And- doesn't feel that great. Prohibition doesn't work. I mean, we've tried it with alcohol. We've tried, you know, now with drugs. And I think, you know, we need to have it monitored and safe because as long as drugs are not um, legal, it means there's no pathways they have to go through to make sure any sort of quality control. And without quality control, then, you know, we're having all kinds of accidents and things. I think the legalization would take away the stigma on promote a lot of education around marijuana. I think right now, because it's illegal, there is a lot of negative misconceptions of marijuana and and leading to a lot of over-exaggeration of the use uh, uh, and uh, the effects of it. But I think as it becomes more mainstream and people understand how the drug works and understand the dosages and the different strains of THC and the different strains of cannabis, uh, sorry, um, um, yeah, cannabis, then I think it'll ease up. My view on legalization is that it has been a very, very rushed process. I think decriminalization could have been a very important first step. 
And there are a number of other models for legalization that Canada could have looked at. So I think I would have liked to have seen legalization rolled out much more slowly. And I'm not necessarily against legalization per se, but I am very concerned about the rush. And I'm very concerned about some of the unknowns that we've talked about. It's a very political question, I feel. I'm usually very like apolitical too. I don't know. I think I think if there was more research done before it was going to be legalized in terms of, you know, short-term effects of use and long-term effects of use and if you end up abstaining from it, you know, quitting it from it, can any of those effects be reversed? I think I'd be more comfortable with it happening. Unfortunately, many individuals aren't educated about potentially the negative effects of cannabis use. I'm not denying that there has been also positive effects found, but I think that also lies in, you know, the CBD and THC content difference. So what people were, you know, smoking 20, 30 years ago in THC content doesn't even compare to what you can find now in, a, in, the, in the local dispensary. So that level of ease that some people might think about using back in the day versus now, it's, it's a totally different game, you could say. So I think in terms of overall usage, I think there will be a spike of more individuals using it. I think what could be problematic is the usage of marijuana in vulnerable populations. And by vulnerable populations, I'm referring to, you know, those who maybe have mental health issues, other kind of mental health issues, or are more susceptible to developing some sort of mental health issues, because it's been shown that, you know, cannabis use leads to a lot of rehospitalization, quicker kind of induced psychotic symptoms, you know, developing eventually schizophrenia. So I think that's where the worry might be found in. I think any kind of research is valuable to kind of help the public become educated in terms of the usage of substances in general. And presenting it to the general public, I think, is also kind of key because uh, a lot of these studies, you know, we as researchers are aware of because, you know, we know how to use PubMed and, and do lit searches, whatever. But Presenting it to the public, whether it's how the news broadcasts it or social media-wise, I think that's also a, another kind of step that needs to be considered when the results of some of these studies are going to start coming out and for it to be kind of translated to anyone from any kind of background to understand and be informed. To get a perspective through the lens of public health, Max spoke with Suda Sabanadesen, a public health policy and research specialist at Toronto Public Health to see what worries the government has about cannabis legalization. I work as a policy development officer at the um, Toronto Drug Strategy Secretariat at Toronto Public Health. And my role has been lately very much involved in looking at the cannabis legislation, working collaboratively with other partners and responding to the issues that have come up on cannabis the harms of prohibition. So when a substance such as cannabis, which is so widely used, is prohibited and criminalized, people end up with criminal records for simple possession. And many of them are young people. And many, disproportionately, it impacts people, uh, racialized people and uh, Aboriginal people. And so it is the social harms from it 
uh, were just not balanced in terms of what might be the harms of uh, actual consumption of cannabis. So you, when something is prohibited, it's quite harmful, obviously, for different reasons. You don't have a safe product. People are criminalized. But then once that ban is removed and if you don't strictly regulate the substance, then you go into commercialization and it's just as bad. So the balance is to, f- to find that spot where harms are minimal. So uh, the approach public health takes is to, uh, it's a harm reduction approach, which means to minimize the harms without necessarily, if people want to continue consuming cannabis, uh, without having to uh, ask them to reduce or stop the use because you know what happens with the whole say no to drugs. That hasn't worked. And so, so that's, yes, that's the idea. But the, the issue with that is you need to continually monitor and fine-tune the regulations and the policies to make sure that is you've got the right balance. So the two things that we are most concerned about from a public health point of view is early initiation and frequent use of cannabis. And the other thing that is the biggest concern for public health is impaired driving. People don't think it's a concern, which uh, especially a lot of young people are not aware that cannabis use uh, can impair your driving ability. So, you know, our advice is that uh, if you consumed cannabis, like, you know, wait for about six hours. Unlike alcohol, where we have quite a bit of research to, you know, look at the blood alcohol concentrations and what, what that means for impairment, we don't have that type of dosage information for cannabis. You know, that may be different for each individual, but just as a general rule of thumb, six hours don't uh, drive after consuming cannabis. We were also curious to know if Toronto Public Health thinks if there will be an overnight change with legalization. You know, is this suddenly, now that it's legal, is it going to be, everybody is going to be on board? Uh, There is a lot of stigma there. There has to be that culture shift on considering this as a substance that, you know, it's psychoactive substance, it's not benign, it's got harms associated with it, but it's something that is consumed and therefore it should be treated the same way as any other product that we consume. Honestly, the big impact would be to um, be able to talk about and educate people on cannabis. We have to talk about both the... um, health harms associated with cannabis. It's important to keep that in mind, as well as the issues on how to perhaps improve the health of the whole population when you look at the different factors such as social harms and health harms and find ways to keep refining the regulations and investing in treatment if people do need treatment and also uh, prevention activities, especially with uh, youth and have a more uh, holistic approach because uh, in reality, uh, we, don't, we cannot look at cannabis in isolation. Cannabis is consumed uh, along with other substances and our, sub- our messaging has to do with harm reduction or any substance use and cannabis being one. And, you know, treat it for what it is and find, uh, you know, less potent uh, products and just keep learning more about it. 
Well, I think it'll be very important to uh, adapt some of the health curriculum to recognize that cannabis is out there and that youth are, if they have been, are going to have to make choices and they should be armed with some information. It's not that simple, though, because uh, they already have a certain amount of information. Now, we're not starting with a blank page as we could have 40 years ago. So there hasn't been a lot of material developed on harm reduction education. So, you know, there's the school-based harm reduction, which can be more structured, and then there can be ads, there can be the universality approach, which in the Harper era, of course, was all scare tactics and was even worse before that in the States. Some of the young people have stepped in, I mean young academics, new scholars, the Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy have put out a whole set of cannabis work plans for youth that could be adapted in some ways. It's very balanced, really emphasizes health issues and and caution when you're young. I mean, perfect world, no one would touch it till 25, but we know that isn't what's been happening. And no matter what some of the the more worried medical people feel, that isn't going to happen. And you can't, by legislating an age of 25, you are not going to get around the fact that the age of initiation is mid-teens. So I really would like to see, and I think the government has said, they will put resources into education and harm reduction, and I know that there are people working on it. So I think the key is to put it in perspective. And before now, it was always out there as, this is terrible, and you were stigmatized if you were a user. I mean, the effort was to maximize stigma and to make people feel like they were taking a huge risk. And then if they did take a risk, they did it in secret, which is always the worst way to use drugs by yourself. I mean, that's partly what's happened with the overdose crisis, which is a much bigger issue right now to worry about. I think whether we'll have a little blip in cannabis trying, but it's sort of just to bring it out in the open, you know, and have people discussing it. And that would mean at least some generations of parents are going to have to also become more informed because they're scared, you know, and I understand that. You know, fear has been the driver of a lot of the prohibitionist movements. Dr. Ruth Ross echoes the importance of education, especially unbiased educational messaging without any conflicts of interest. So I think a key thing, which isn't the realm in which I work, but I think it's really important that we get some strong educational messaging and I think it's really important that's being done at arm's length and that being done by the government. The education needs to be done free of any conflicts of interest. That's really important. We have learned from a whole lot of different scenarios that people will be very well aware of that there can be conflicts of interest when people produce materials around promotion, marketing and potentially under the heading of education. So it's very important that we have educational materials, the latest research getting into the hands of the public as soon as possible and as quickly as possible. And as I say, it needs to be clear of any conflict of interest that may affect the way in which that educational material is disseminated and people are made aware of it. There are lots of different experts working on different things and seeing this from different perspectives. And it's important we all listen to one another. So experts aren't necessarily all in alignment with their views, but certainly there are some topics where 
most people actually do agree about potential harms and most people do agree on things that we don't know and those are the things that we can communicate quite clearly currently there are other things we need to actually just communicate well we don't know how you're going to respond to cannabis and you need to know that if you take it then to a certain extent it's an unknown so we can actually communicate that rather than communicating something that sounds like we've lots of research we know everything and this is very clear because it's there's lots of nuance there's lots of unknowns lauren shared how she's personally involved in cannabis education so believe is a licensed producer of cannabis under Health Canada, which means that we're licensed to grow and cultivate and sell our own cannabis. So we have been operating since we got our sales license May of this year. So we've been selling to medical marijuana patients ever since then. But really what I love about Believe and what really drew me to them as a company that I wanted to align myself with is their care and concern for their customers. They're such a socially responsible company and even just kind of going in and chatting with them they are fully aware of all the harms that are associated with cannabis and they're not trying to I guess fluff it up or brush it under the rug or undermine everything that there is out there but they're really trying to focus on education and informing critical populations so adolescents parents how to chat with your kids about difficult conversations and I think that's really where all of this is needed and where the critical area um, is right now. So my role there is in charge of education and social responsibility. So right now I'm crafting a strategy that can really target youth as well as address all of these misconceptions. So misconceptions both in undermining the effects, but also in the over-exaggeration of effects of cannabis. So my goal is to be able to provide really clear accurate information to the public, just addressing any kind of misconceptions out there. There definitely seems to be one thing that most people we talked to agreed on. Cannabis use in children and adolescents is a bad idea. Here's one parent's perspective on cannabis use with respect to our children, now that it's legal for recreational use for ages 19 and up. I have children and I've still sort of requested that if they're going to experiment, that they wait until their brains are fully formed, sort of after the age of 25. Um, Just do that favor for me and then, you know, do your thing. But, you know, it's, you can only have so many conversations and just hope they listen. Um, Because I think the jury's still out on, on what these things do to your brain, especially developing brains. I was very skeptical initially, and I've read enough of the research, talked to enough colleagues. I think it's real, but you have to realize that it's for a very small subset of the adolescent population. And so the federal government now in their new bill, which is a lot more complicated than the old bills, they want to really limit promotion, advertising, which is fine, but also selling to youth or to have youth involved in sales. You know, they want to be tough. They want to show that they can be tough in trying to keep cannabis away from youth. But I think it's not that important to keep it away from all youth. It's 
might be better to acknowledge that there will be experimentation and that the social supply network that now operates for teens has been well documented everywhere. That's what kids do. They're not being, getting it from some adult, you know, lurking at the schoolyard. It's social supply, it's sharing, they don't consider it dealing. We found that in our studies too. And it wouldn't make sense to criminalize, to me, a, a 17-year-old for giving a joint to a 16-year-old or something. And I'm worried a little bit about how that's going to unfold because there is still in the legislation, I think, the sense that somehow we have to stop youth from using, and that isn't realistic right now. We can do our best to delay initiation and to, for the most part, not overstate risks, but we don't want to continue this kind of thinking that any use is bad. And it's a hard act. I mean, I, I'm very sympathetic in the sense the government is trying to balance very difficult objectives. You know, when they say keep it out of the hands of children, well, it's never been in the hands of children. I don't know what they meant. Children are not using cannabis, if you're talking about preteens. And most teens aren't either. But we also know from research that's done by people I've worked with that the teens who get into trouble with overuse of cannabis are ones that generally are disadvantaged in other ways, you know, in terms of uh, learning disability or uh, poor background or difficulties at home or, you know, it's associated with that. It isn't just associated with being young. So there's a lot to work out. I, I, the educators have a real challenge there, and I, I really hope resources will, will go into that. I think Health Canada has been treading lightly in terms of the regulations that it's putting in place around cannabis. First and foremost, it's looking out for youth for sure. And it's really trying to make sure that cannabis doesn't get into the hands of youth. And the regulations are really trying to curb the black market as well so that youth don't turn there. The regulations that are in place right now, so federally, the minimum age is 18, and you're allowed to possess up to 30 grams of cannabis on you at a time. However, each province is allowed to have their own regulations put in place um, that can be more strict or more stringent on those. For example, Ontario has raised the 18 to 19, so only Ontarians 19 and older will be able to purchase cannabis. And right now, as of October 17th, that's only going to be through the Ontario Cannabis Store, which is an online platform. They really want to make sure that they're getting it right and that they're not just, you know, putting this out there in stores without putting all the necessary precautions in place. So I definitely understand that and respect that. In terms of CBD and THC and kind of regulations around that, they're being very cautious around that also because the literature is still a little bit ambiguous and there really are no systematic reviews looking at specifically what I'm looking into. So that's why I think my research is very important in informing hopefully this policy and uh, regulations around this. Right now, we're really under surveillance internationally for this plan for cannabis and will be judged on it. And I think there'll be a lot of countries that cannabis and heroin still are equally bad. So, you know, there's quite a ways to go. But I think we're on that trajectory to take a more health-based approach. I think the public discourse that I've seen over 40 years has changed to be more appreciative of drug users aren't just bad people, you know, and they deserve care and attention and support. I think the important thing is that 
the world won't be that different on October 18th, that a lot of the social regulation and informal control on cannabis use will still be there. My hope is that for those who would be users or current users, I hope they'll give the legal regulation system a chance. I know it's going to be a big test of whether the illegal market can be undercut. And with all the provincial variation and the confusion and online ordering and retail or hybrid or monopoly, you know, all, if people are already have their established channels and access, they may not be that keen to switch. They might be getting good incentives from <laughs> the illegal market to continue. But I, I think part of it being normalized and for users to be kind of responsible in a broader sense is to really try to give the legal market a chance to develop and, and use it. Because if we don't demonstrate that we can seriously undercut the illegal market, not overnight, but in time, then it will be difficult to count that part of the policy as success. So I'm really hoping that people will shift. And that, of course, then that means that a lot of the smaller producers, growers, et cetera, they also, this is another big issue that's still not resolved, they need a niche into the market as well. Otherwise, it's their livelihood. So, you know, there's a lot to balance, but it's really going to be important that people don't overreact to legalization, start seeing druggies everywhere and worrying and, and overreacting, particularly about youth. Normalization has been going on and it's been around us. Cannabis is very much part of our modern society and I think your younger generation will, will evolve with it and help to form a, a better policy. Hey listeners, we hope you learned as much about cannabis as we did putting together this show. A special thanks to Thamia, Amber, and Max for working with myself on this episode's content, as well as Action and Richie for helping out with the audio editing. Before you go, we've got a big favor to ask from you. We'd love if you would take our survey. A lot has changed since our first season, and we're curious to know what you think of the program, what you like and don't like, what you want to hear more of, and how you found us. Just click the link in the episode description. It'll only take a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Thanks so much, and until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Be respectful. That's it.